John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away, again, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In either 168 or 167 B.C., the Syrian Antiochus the fourth, also called Epiphanes, which means God manifest. He took divine titles to himself and printed these on the coins. Antiochus the fourth of the Seleucid dynasty. He attacked Jerusalem, killed thousands, and defiled the temple by setting up a pagan altar inside the Jewish temple. The Jews, chafing under this oppression, began to develop the art of guerrilla warfare. And they wouldn't just stand and fight, but they would attack and then disappear, and they became very good at this. And under one of them, named Judas Maccabeus, and Maccabeus was a nickname, it means the hammer. So Judas the hammer, uh, under his leadership, they recaptured the temple and rededicated it in around the month that we call December, Kislev, Uh, of 164 B.C. And they were so jubilant about the rededication of the temple that they had a feast that lasted eight days. And then they decided that they would do this every year. And they would have this feast uh, around our month of December every year to celebrate the dedication, the Hanukkah of the temple. And they celebrate it to this day. 
Now, this was not one of the the feasts that was a biblical feast. This came after the Old Testament was finished. This was not one of the ones that they were commanded to practice in Scripture. So in some ways, this was a lesser feast, but it was a very joyful feast. And just like uh, the feast that we just looked at, this had a feast, uh, a feast that was used, used lights as well. And uh, it could be practiced not only in Jerusalem, but also in one's home. They didn't have to go to Jerusalem to practice this. But Jesus, in this, this feast that celebrates deliverance, the deliverance of God's people from their oppressors, he gives what is, in the Gospel of John, the last public ministry, the last public teaching. And we're in chapter 10, and we are only about halfway through. But from here on out, there is going to be a focus more on his disciples than on his public teaching ministry. And it says that it was during the Feast of Dedication. Uh, and that took place in Jerusalem. He, Jesus was still in Jerusalem. It was winter, which may explain why in verse 23, Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. The weather might have been bad, uh, as it can be in the winter there. And so he was under the colonnade. He was under the, the roof, and he was teaching. It was a place where, where teachers would often teach their disciples. So what they did, those who had heard him, the Jews of Jerusalem, it says that they encircled him. They were trying to pin him down. And they said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So they they encircled him and they said, We're going to find out. Tell us plainly. Now, this the, what they said was, they said, How long will you keep us in suspense? It's interesting because this is a, a, an unusual expression. It's, it's literally, how long will you take up our souls? How long will you take up our souls? Now, if you look back at verse 18 of this same chapter, Jesus says here, No one takes it, that is my soul from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And he used this idea of taking one's soul as killing. And so here they're saying, how long will you take our souls? We could use a modern, uh, a modern expression. Sometimes we say, you're killing me. And that may be what they were saying. How long are you going to go on killing us? Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Now, Jesus had not yet declared openly among the Jews that He was the Christ. He did reveal Himself, if you recall, to the Samaritan woman, but that was outside of Jerusalem, that was outside of Judea, when He said, the one who is speaking to you is He. So He said He was the Christ. But with the Jews, He'd never said that plainly, and so we shouldn't expect Him to do it now just because of their insistence. And indeed, He didn't. What did He do? He, he did what he normally did. He appealed to his words and he appealed to his works. He said, I've spoken to you. I have shown you many things. Look at those and draw the proper conclusion. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. I already told you. And I already did these works, and I'm not going to give you anything more at this point. But then he explains something. He explains what we saw last week. 
the reason they did not believe, and it was not because they didn't have enough evidence. That's what they thought their problem was. If you will just tell us plainly, if you'll just say it plainly, then we'll believe. But that wasn't their problem. The problem was deeper. Jesus says in verse 26, You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. What did we see last week? We saw, as he says in verse 27, Those who are my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now this is interesting because he says he has those who are his sheep. They're already his sheep. And here it's indicating that they're already selected out. They're already chosen, identified as Jesus' sheep. And how will they demonstrate that they are Jesus' sheep? Well, they will hear His voice, they will know His voice, and they will follow Him. That's how a sheep identifies itself as a sheep. That's how a follower of Christ, a true believer, a true disciple, identifies himself or herself hearing Christ's voice, and obeying Christ's voice, following Him. Now, He says to those who do that, who hear His voice, who respond in faith, and who follow Him, He says, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. So eternal life is what? It's a gift. It's a gift. So we we need to distinguish that gift from two ideas that are very common in our culture. And those two ideas, two ideas are that it is an accomplishment on our part that we can somehow do something in order to attain eternal life. And that's what many people believe. And the other idea that I find very prevalent, at least in our culture, and I find this very prevalent when I go to funerals, um, and uh, funerals of those who really don't know what the Scripture teaches, they tend to treat eternal life as a natural state of everybody, and as something like a a natural right that already belongs to everybody. Everybody has that. That's a Greek idea, that's an idea of Socrates, but that's not a biblical idea. The biblical idea is that this is a gift that Christ gives to His sheep. And who are His sheep? Those who hear His voice, those who respond in faith, and those who follow Him. Those are his sheep. Those are the ones to whom he gives eternal life as a gift. Now, in order to emphasize that this is eternal life, he says that in verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now that's an, that's a verb he's already used. <clears throat> that's a verb he's already used in this chapter. If you go back and look at verse twenty, uh, I'm sorry, twelve. It says, "He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them." So he's already introduced this idea of the wolf snatching the sheep away from the hired hand. But he says, in, in contrast to that, if, if someone is my sheep, then no one can snatch them out of my hand. Now, this is a very comforting idea. Because we have seen, up to this point in the Gospel of John, that there have been many people who have mouthed 
some sort of faith in Jesus. But then they quickly turn away. Chapter 8 was shocking. Jesus was responding to those who believed in Him, but by the end of the chapter they wanted to kill Him. And so we've seen a great deal of false faith up to this point. And so this could, this could be very disconcerting for us. But Jesus re- replies to that with the, with the contrast to those who do have faith and who manifest that faith by following Jesus with their lives. He says, those, my sheep, who distinguish themselves in that way, their true faith, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then he goes on. And he, he, he makes this even stronger. My Father, who has given them to me. So the Father has given the sheep to Jesus. The Father has given Christ's people to Christ as a gift. He says, the Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, no one can snatch them out of Christ's hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is a a double grip here. Those who are Christ's own, whom the Father has given to Christ, for whom Christ has died and risen again, they are eternally safe. There is a, a double grasp here, the grasp of the Son and the grasp of the Father. Neither will let them go. And so, the grasping power, the holding power of the Father and the Son together are greater than any snatching power in the universe. And that's a comforting thing. Now, Jesus ended this by saying very simply, verse 30, He said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Now, we have... The New Testament is in Greek. Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic. But what we have is Greek. And John wrote to us in Greek. That's what we have in the New Testament. And what we have is, in Greek, like in some other languages, the, uh, the nouns have gender. And the nouns are masculine, feminine, or neuter. And, and that's important here because when Jesus says... I and the Father are one. That word one is neuter. It's neuter. So it doesn't have gender. Now, why is that important? Because if Jesus were emphasizing the fact that they were identical in being, He would have most likely used the masculine. But He uses uh, the neuter, which probably indicates, as this context does, that what He's talking about here is that they are one in purpose and one in action. That is to say, I have these sheep, I will not let them go, no one can snatch them out of my hand, and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand as well. We are united in not letting these sheep go. We are united in purpose, united in action. However... Uh, Some take that and say, see, Jesus was not really claiming to be God, but if He's claiming that His purposes and His actions are the same as the Father's, then He is at least indirectly saying that we are not only united in purpose and action, but we are united in being. And the Jews, even if that was not His 
his, his primary statement here, that's a necessary presupposition of what he says here. And the Jews did not miss his point. They picked up stones again to stone him. They understood what he was saying, that he was claiming equivalence with the Father. Now, Jesus answered them very calmly. And he says, as they go and they get stones, they probably wouldn't have had stones right there in the, in the colonnade of Solomon, but they, they found some somewhere, rubble or construction debris or something, and they, 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 they came back. I don't know how far they had to go, but they had objects in their hands and they were ready to stone him. And, and Jesus says, I have a question about what you're doing here, about stoning me. So he's very calm. And he says, I've done a number of good works. For which of these good works are you stoning me? And they explain, it's not for a good work that we're stoning you, but for blasphemy. And here they spell it out. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's why we're stoning you. You, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now, Jesus responds in a way that's indirect, but He quotes Scripture to them. And He quotes from Psalm 82, which we read earlier, and it's verse 6, and He says to them, Is it not written in your law? Now, that's an interesting use of the word law, because He's referring to the Psalms. But sometimes they would use the word law to mean, to mean the whole Old Testament. And He says, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. And then here's the reasoning. If He, God, called them gods to whom the Word of God came and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. Now, this argument is an argument that we've seen, this form of argument. It's an argument of how much more. How much more. So he's saying, if in your law, which you recognize and I recognize, Psalm 82, 6, if in that verse, God recognizes in some sort of a metaphorical way that human beings are God-like because they received the Word of God and they have the Word of God, then how, why, how are you so upset? Why are you so upset if someone who has a much greater claim than they did, the Israelites in general, if someone who has a much greater claim, that is, he's set, about, set aside by the Father, sent into the world, if that one claims, I am the Son of God, and you say that's blasphemy? If you, in your law, recognize that there is some sense in which these people were godlike, well, what about the one whom God has chosen, the one whom God has set apart, the one whom God has sent into the world? If he calls himself the Son of God, why do you want to stone him. It's a how much more argument. But once again, you see Jesus is not doing what they wanted Him to do. They wanted to come out and say plainly, and here He's giving them an argument for them to think about. And their response is in, um, it comes later, but in verse 30, 38, once again, I'm sorry, 37, He points them once again to what? His works. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, my words, believe the works 
that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. You see, he didn't tone things down here. There are some scholars who say, look, he, this is, they're one in purpose, they're not one in being. Uh, and here, he's just putting himself on the level of other humans who receive the Word of God. No, he's not. Not at all. He's saying, if these mere mortals can be called gods in some sense, how much more the one who does the works of God? And how much more the one who can say, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father? So not only does he claim that they are united in purpose and in action, they are united in purpose and in action because they are united in being God. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Now normally, blasphemy in the Old Testament, it did require death by stoning. And they understood the law, but it wasn't by mob violence. It should have been by a a normal... Uh, uh, legal procedure. And so here it says in verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him. So it looks like they changed their plans. Rather than stoning him by mob violence, Jesus' calm discourse with them had perhaps calmed them down a bit. And so they were going to do it in a more legal way. They wanted to arrest him. But it says here that he escaped from their hands. He escaped from their hands. It doesn't say how he did it, but he escaped from their hands. And there's a contrast here, isn't there? Do you remember what he said about hands already? He said, I have my sheep and no one can take them out of my hand. And my father, no one can take them out of my father's hand. But what does he do with regard to their hands? He walks away. He escapes from their hands. They can't hold Him. Now, we don't have an explanation why. But in other places, we have an explanation. When they wanted to do things to Him, John has told us a number of times, they could not because His hour had not yet come. And Jesus knew that, explaining perhaps why He was so calm in the face of this mob. They could not stone Him. They could not arrest Him. Why not? Because his hour had not yet come. We'll find in two chapters more that things change. But here we have this close on the, the public ministry of Jesus. And we have a conclusion in verses 40 to 42. We have this, this mob wanting to arrest him, wanting to stone him, but they could not yet. And it says he went away, verse 40. Again, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. This is a very artistic way of of closing the public ministry. He's closing his public ministry in exactly the same place where he began it. If you've been following in this series, you recall that there John was baptizing and there John baptized Jesus as well. And Jesus began His public ministry. So where He began, now He is concluding. And it seems like there were some in that region who remembered John's preaching. It had only been two to three years earlier. And they were talking about 
he came back and they were talking about John's preaching in verse 41. Many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. And thus closes the the public ministry of Jesus, his teaching ministry in the Gospel of John. And it ends like many of the episodes have ended. It ends with two different reactions to Jesus, doesn't it? There are those who want to arrest Him, those who want to stone Him, those who want to do away with Him, those who are calling Him a blasphemer. And there are those who believe in Him. And it says there were many in both camps. So we have, once again, a house divided. Some who oppose Him, and some who believe in Him. Now, even those who opposed Him, they were understanding at least part of what He was saying. They were right in understanding Him to be saying that He was equal with God. And if they were right in saying, you are a mere man, and you are making yourself out to be God, that would be blasphemy. So they were right about all of that. But they were wrong about who he was and what he was doing. He was not a man who was making himself out to be God. Even more astoundingly, he was God who was making himself a man. And that's the shocking news here. You see, if a man makes himself to be God, that's blasphemy. If if God makes himself to be a man, so that he can live as a man, so that he can die as a man, and so he can rise from the dead as a man, then that is eternal life for all who believe in him. Let's pray. Our God, we often get things backwards. We see something and we conclude the opposite of what's going on. And we, had we been there, we don't know in which camp we would have been, hearing Jesus and seeing Jesus. Of course, being your sheep, we would have eventually heard and responded and followed, but I'm sympathetic with His followers. Hearing this man who is saying that He is one with you, But we look at His works and we hear His words and we hear Your voice and we see Your actions. And so we conclude that this is not a man crazily making himself to be God, but we are amazed that You, O God, have made Yourself one of us to give us the gift of eternal life. And I pray for all of us, Lord, We don't know what your eternal plans are, but we know what you've placed before us today. This message of God who became man, who lived and died and rose again, so that all who believe and follow will have eternal life. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that we might hear your voice, believe you, and follow Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.